recorded live. Hello. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. I say that for the benefit of the people who are in talk show listening. Most people that listen to these programs listen on the Christagenia radio streams. I, I, I have some problems with a couple of them. They're not technically the best, um, the best servers money can buy. I hope to resolve some of those issues or move towards resolving them when I return from vacation the end of this month and the beginning of September. The, um, the streams work fine for me all the time. There are some people that complain about their cutting out. I suggest streams 2 and 4 because streams 1, 3, and 5 are with an ISP who, while economical, and, and while that ISP was really, really came through in a pinch when I was suddenly dumped due to ADL complaints last August, the bandwidth just isn't the best with that ISP, and, and I'm going to have to think about moving most of Christagenia out of there, which I plan to do starting in September. Today is... Friday, August 9, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. We will commence with our presentation of the book of Acts, chapter 12. It absolutely amazes me, and I have some opening comments before I commence. It absolutely amazes me that identity Christians, as a rule, and I've, I've seen hundreds of them doing this same thing, that identity Christians would spend countless hours, days, and weeks of their lives pontificating about the Murano Jewish infiltrators who have corrupted mainstream Christian denominations over the centuries. But then, when one of their own takes an obvious left turn and begins teaching the same universalist doctrines concerning the other races and the mixed races that the Moranos had polluted mainstream Christianity with, those same people complain about mainstream Christianity, yet they refuse to investigate as to the reasons why such a thing may be happening in Christian identity. And then when someone does come along to do the investigating, they refuse to look at the evidence. Or they offhandedly dismiss it as biased. How are they not worse than Baptists and Catholics? How are they not absolute hypocrites? And I will leave off on that topic right there. Until tomorrow night. Here we will commence with our presentation of the Book of Acts, Chapter 12. We have said that the book of Acts is a book of transition. And introducing the book in the first segment of this presentation, some months ago, we described some of the aspects of that transition. One of the things that we said is that it records a transition from the rituals of the laws of the Old Covenant to a faith in the Word of God in Christ which was promised by the prophets of the Old Covenant, and which was recorded in the Gospel of the New Covenant. Now, part of that very transition is recorded in Acts chapters 10 and 11, where Peter witnessed and then acknowledged that the members of the household of Cornelius had received the Holy Spirit upon hearing the Word of God, and ostensibly upon having accepted it. 
And it was specifically noted that this happened apart from a ritual of water baptism. Another of the things we said concerning this book of transition in our introduction is that Acts records a transition of the primary subject of the Word of God from the remnant of Jerusalem, where it had been all through the Second, second Temple period, to the dispersion of the children of Israel, rejected, divorced Israel, the lost sheep of the ancient dispersions. The beginnings of this transition we have also seen recorded in Acts chapters 10 and 11, where through Peter's vision, the apostles had discovered that the nations, which in a historical context refers to the nations of the Adamic Oikumene, the race of Adam, the white nations, the nations which were to be ruled over by the beast, wheresoever the children of Adam dwell, as Nebuchadnezzar was told. that those nations would receive the gospel of Christ. Two of the transitions we see in the book of Acts. Paul later establishes this interpretation concerning these nations in many places in his epistles, such as at Romans chapter 4, and at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the later, he states, and I'll quote from verse 18 of that chapter, Behold, Israel down through the flesh, or Israel according to the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. What then do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. Saying this to the Corinthians, Paul reveals an understanding that the nations of Europe which were practicing pagan idolatries were indeed the dispersed of Israel. Israel down through, as the Christogenia New Testament has it, or Israel according to the flesh, as it may have been translated. Now, the King James Version and other versions here strangely have after the flesh in 1 Corinthians 10.18. However, the same exact Greek phrase is rendered according to the flesh in the King James Version and other versions on six other occasions where it appears in Paul's letters and in the King James Version, and also at Acts chapter 2, verse 30. It's Israel according to the flesh. In other words, Paul is pointing out that the nations who are practicing pagan idolatries, they are the real genetic Israel, not those people in Judea, where Paul says that not all of them in Israel are Israel, in Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> those people were half Edomite. It is also expedient to recall here one other thing from Acts chapter 11, and that is where we are informed that the students in Antioch, or Antiochia, were the first to be labeled Christians 
Acts 11.26. We had demonstrated here last week that the label Christ was a label which Yahshua clearly accepted as a name for himself, which is evident in the gospel in several places, in Matthew 24.5 and elsewhere. Where, where, where he says at Matthew 24, 5, that many will come in my name saying, well, he didn't say they would be saying, I am the Nazarene. He didn't say they would be saying, I am Jesus. He didn't say they would be saying, I am Elohim. He didn't say they would be saying anything but, I am Christ. So that is what he accepted as a name. We had also seen that this is the name which the apostles had indeed later taken upon themselves, which is evident at Acts 26:28, and which is quite explicit in Peter's first epistle at 1 Peter 4:16. The adoption of the name Christian by the people of God is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, where in chapter 62, Yahweh says, and the nations shall see thy, meaning Israel's, righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. Yahshua Christ, being Yahweh in the flesh, he called himself Christ. He said that was his name in Matthew 24, 5. And history proves the fulfillment of the prophecy in that manner. Once the Judeans, who followed after Christ, adopted the name of Christians, they lost their identity as Judeans. All the believers, the true Israelites of Judea, taking the name of Christ upon themselves could no longer be considered as Jews. Eventually, the only Jews left were the bad fig Canaanites and Edomites and other mongrels and bastards who rejected Christ. And they are the Jews of today. Christ himself told them, as it is recorded in John 10:26, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Recently, I have come across one old fool, one East Tennessee hillbilly that's been drinking far too much moonshine, but who claims to have exclusive and absolute truths from God, who says of identity Christians that they must get rid of the corrupt name Christian. Such a persuasion is obviously contrary to the word of God. It is certainly evident from history that any name and any organizational form which the people of God assume shall be infiltrated and corrupted by the enemies of God so long as those enemies exist. That is why the Apostle John warned his readers in his first epistle, found at 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh, because many false prophets have gone out into society. We do not retreat with our language because certain 
unseemly elements have corrupted it. If we continue, if we retreat, soon we'll have nowhere to flee to. The same turkey says that we should call ourselves Elohim. Well, not for nothing, but I personally have seen black, quote unquote, I mean, they believe it. They got 75 IQs and they believe it. Hebrew Israelites who call themselves Elohim. So I guess we should get rid of the corrupt word Elohim. How much of our language do we surrender to the enemies of God? None of it. Because we, identity Christians, when we say Christian, we're not talking about Baptists and Catholics and, and, and the mainstream sects with their 50 million different heresies and their universalism and, and their rituals. And there, there are many popes in every parish or, or, or on every street. We're not talking about that. That's not Christianity. We know what we're talking about, and we shouldn't surrender our language. I'm an identity Christian. Identity Christian meaning that I identify the peoples of the Old Testament, the good and the bad. I use history and scripture to do that. To me, that's what an identity Christian is. That's what I mean when I say Christian identity. I'm, I'm not spiritual Christian that, that, that thinks that there's spiritual sperm and anybody could be a Christian. No, I'm an identity Christian. I know who the sheep are and I know who the goats are. And I know who the infiltrators are. With that, we will commence with Acts chapter 12. From verse 1. Now, throughout that time, Herodas, or Herod, the king, applied his hands to mistreat some of those from the assembly. Here the Codex Beze interpolates the words in Judea. And he slew Jacob, or James, if you will. He slew James, the brother of John, with the sword. I'd like to quote a line from the tragic poet Euripides. I love this line. It's short. It's from Hippolytus, lines 962 to 963. The bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the true-born. The Greeks knew it. The Greeks knew it because they were Hebrews, or at least many of them were. And they studied the Old Testament also, the Greek philosophers. Without a doubt, Pythagoras, Plato. The truth of this proverb is evident in history over and over again, beginning with Genesis chapter 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. This James is the son of Zebedee, the brother of that John who wrote the gospel, the three epistles in our Bibles by his name and the revelation. And yes, that same John the Apostle wrote them all. Don't let the Jews deceive you. James and John are introduced in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, in verse 21. And proceeding from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the vessel with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, leaving the vessel and their father, they followed him. In his own Gospel, in the Gospel of John, 
The apostle does not mention by name either his brother or himself. However, he makes one mention in chapter 21 at verse 2 of the sons of Zebedee, which were he and James. This James is the first, so far as we know, from the surviving records, this James is the first of the original apostles to be martyred. The year, as we shall see, is 44 A.D., or short, very shortly before that. The James of Acts chapters 15 and 21, that James is the half-brother of Joshua. He is surely the author of the epistle known by that name. James, the half-brother of Joshua, is called James the Less in Scripture at Mark 15.40. We're speaking of Mary, the mother of Christ, it says. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joses, and Salome, or Salome. And we know this is also the mother of Christ from Matthew 13:55. I'm sorry, the, the, the mother of Christ from Matthew 13:55, 27:56, and Mark 6:3, where her children are also mentioned, the same names. Except in some places it doesn't say Salome; it says his sisters. Only one of them was present, ostensibly, at the crucifixion where Mark recorded Mark 15.40. James, the brother of Joshua, whose death by stoning is recorded by Flavius Josephus in Antiquities, Book 20, Chapter 9, he died much later, after the death of Festus, the governor of Judea, mentioned in Acts chapters 24 through 26 which happened about 62 A.D. That's when James, the brother of Joshua, died. About 62 A.D. and after Paul of Tarsus was sent to Rome. This James, this here James, who dies here at the hand of Herod, the brother of John and the son of Zebedee, he is therefore the elder James. The event of his death, which is recorded here, must have happened either during or not long before the spring of 44 A.D., which is when the death of his murderer, Herod Agrippa I, which is described later in this chapter of Acts, is reckoned to have occurred. Josephus records the death of this Herod, but he does not record the death of this James. This Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was the grandson of the original Herod, who the Jews loved to call the Great. His parents were Aristobulus and Berenice, or Berenike, who were also first cousins. Aristobulus, this Herod's father, was slain along with one of his brothers by his own father, Herod the Great, for, for alleged treason in 7 B.C., the line of Herod the Edomite is filled with both incest and treachery. Later, this Herod who, die, who, who dies here in Acts chapter 12, this Herod who murders the Apostle James here in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa I, he helped to create the circumstances which had led to the banishment of his own uncle, 
Herod Antipas, clearing the path for his own advancement. It was Herod Antipas who was the Herod that, John the, that had John the Baptist slain and who was also mentioned in the Gospels as having returned Christ to Pontius Pilate. The emperor, the emperor Claudius gave Herod Agrippa I dominion as a king over Judea and Samaria. Now, there had been no kings from the time of, of the, um, the banishment of Herod Archelaus, the first successor to Herod the Great. I believe that happened in 9 AD. He was banished, and that's when the nation was split into a tetrarchy. Under Claudius, it was recreated into a kingdom. It was actually expanded. Claudius gave Herod Agrippa I dominion over Judea and Samaria as a gift. In return for his support, after the assassination of Caligula, Gaius Caesar, otherwise known as Caligula, 41 AD, his brother, Herod of Chalcis, was married to both his cousin Mariam and later to his own niece, Berenice, or Berenike. The son of Herod Agrippa I, called Herod Agrippa II, is the Agrippa of the later chapter of Acts, where we see the arrest of Paul. Herod Agrippa II inherited the kingdom of his father, whose death is recorded here in Acts chapter 12. And he also later inherited the kingdom of his uncle, Herod of Chalcis, who died in 48 AD. He was in an he was in an incestuous relationship with his own sister, who was also named Berenike, or Berenice, the same woman who had been married to his uncle, Herod of Chalcis. He, invented, he, he inherited his kingdom and his wife, who happened to be his own sister. Here in Acts, Herod Agrippa I is portrayed as an evil and cruel man. Flavius Josephus, who was only a young boy, at the time of this Herod Agrippa's death, later portrayed him in Antiquities, Book 19, as kind and generous. Although Josephus basically agrees with the account in Acts where it describes the reason for, reasons for his death, and we will get into that at length later. It is evident that Josephus was only repeating being seven years old when Herod Agrippa I died, Josephus was only repeating what he himself had been taught by the anti-Christian establishment in Judea, and we'll discuss that again. Acts chapter 12, verse 3. Then seeing that it is pleasing to the Judeans, he, meaning Herod Agrippa, proceeded to seize Peter also, and it was the days of unleavened bread, whom he then, laying hold of, put into prison, committing him to the four squads of four soldiers to watch him, planning after the Passover to lead him to the people. The Edomite bastards have always been adversarial to Christianity, and have always wanted to destroy it, never leaving well enough alone. This condition, which is only adequately explained by the enmity of Genesis 3.15, knowing that the Edomites are indeed the offspring of serpents, as John the Baptist and as Christ himself often called them, 
the bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the trueborn. If we would remember that ancient Greek adage, we as a people would all be a hell of a lot better off today in our national, in our spiritual, and in our personal lives. The Codex Beze begins verse 3 with a clause, then seeing that his attack upon the faithful is pleasing to the Judeans. Another interpolation. The phrase, four squads of four soldiers, it, it's kind of clumsy, right? It's a very literal translation of a Greek phrase coming from the words tesares, which means four, tetradion, which means a guard consisting of four soldiers, see Thayer, Strong's number 5069, and the word stratiotes, which is a soldier. One ancient codex known as 0244 from the 5th century wants that word soldiers. It would be inferred anyway. It seems that the four squads, each consisting of four soldiers, were guards of the prison who ostensibly worked in shifts. The Greek word pasca is Passover here, where Herod, planning after the Passover, would lead Peter to the people, evidently for his execution, right? The Greek word pasca, Passover here, is the same word used to describe the feast of Passover all throughout the Gospels and the Old Testament Septuagint the Greek version of the Old Testament. The substitution for Passover with the pagan fertility holiday Easter by the organized sects is a crime. And the King James Version's use of the word Easter here in this verse is a crime. The words Easter, Esther, Ishtar, Ishtar was the name of the ancient Babylonian fertility goddess. The words are all related. Easter, eggs, bunnies, multiply like rabbits, get it? Christians should keep the Passover, as Paul exhorts at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where in the verses leading up to that exhortation, he tells us to cleanse out the old leaven, which is a reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately preceded the Passover. And then he gives us the reason for keeping the Passover, where he says, since also Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, therefore Christians should keep the Passover as a memorial of that sacrifice. Verse 5. So then Peter was being kept in the prison, but prayer was fervently being made to Yahweh by the assembly concerning him. Then when Herod was about to bring him forth, so we can imagine that it's just after the Passover, as the text said in the previous verses, in that night Peter was sleeping between two of the soldiers bound with two chains, and a guard before the door watched the prison. And behold, a messenger, or an angel, if you will, a messenger of the prince appeared, and a light shone in the building. 
the ability of this messenger or angel to bring Peter out of this jail under such circumstances without causing any commotion whatsoever among these soldiers is indeed miraculous and cannot be reasonably explained under completely natural circumstances. As Gamaliel was recorded, as having said in Acts chapter 5, from verse 38, And now I say these things to you. Distance yourselves from these men and release them, because if this counsel or this work should be of men, it shall be broken up. But if it is from God, you shall not be able to break them up, lest then you are found fighting God. The assembly was fervently praying on behalf of Peter that he would be spared. Christ prayed likewise in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew of his impending arrest in the trials which he himself would face. And when his supplication was ending, he exclaimed in his prayer that it should be, not as I desire, rather as you do, referring to the will of God. This is an example which we have throughout Scripture, which we should bear in mind all the time, that the hand of God effects his own will in the world, and we praying that his will will be done shall be found to be in agreement with him. Such is true even if his will necessitates our own death, which is the example of Christ. Being Christians, in our death we shall indeed find life. Ostensibly, Peter was spared because it was the plan of Yahweh God that his gospel be spread to the dispersed nations of Israel and Herod was not going to stand in its way. To continue with verse 7, then striking, and the Codex Beze has a verb which means nudging or poking, then striking the side of Peter, He roused him, saying, Arise, quickly! And the chains fell off from his hands. Then the messenger said to him, Gird yourself and fasten your sandals. And he did thusly. And he says to him, Throw on your garment and follow me. And departing he followed, yet did not know what is happening is actually by the messenger. But he imagined to be seeing a vision. This also indicates just how miraculous Peter's midnight, and and I mean that by middle of the night, midnight delivery from the jail was, that even Peter himself did not at first perceive that it was real. To a prison keeper, the escape of a prisoner was a matter of serious disgrace in Acts chapter 16, where it is recorded that there was an earthquake that opened the gates of a Greek prison, I believe it was in Philippi, something which the guards by no means could have foreseen or prevented. It is said that the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled, as the King James Version has the text of Acts 16.27. Verse 10 Then going by the first guard, 
And the second, they should have never been able to do that, they came to the iron gate, which leads to the city, which opened by itself for them. And going out, they advanced one block, and at once the messenger or angel departed from him, meaning Peter. The Codex Beze has an interesting interpolation. It has verse 10 in part, and going out, they descended seven steps, and they advanced one block. It uses the symbol, the letter Zeta, for seven, rather than spelling the word out. It seems that somebody in the Codex, somebody writing the Codex Beze knew more about the layout of the temple in Jerusalem where the prison was and, and, and I, I don't know, maybe wanted to be more precise or whatever. The opening of the Iron Gate again reflects the miraculous nature of this delivery. For under normal circumstances, such gates did not open easily. These are large iron gates designed to keep cities safe from criminals and invaders. They are not your average garden gate. This gate would have also had a guard posted, and it opened by itself. Verse 11. And Peter, being by himself, said, Now I truly know that the prince dispatched his messenger and delivered me from the hand of Herod. And all of the expectations of the people of the Judeans. And the phrase, Peter being by himself, may have been rendered, and Peter coming to himself, or, in other words, and Peter coming to his senses. And for that reason, the King James Version translated it, and when Peter was come to himself. It's an idiom. It should probably probably most colloquially be translated, and Peter coming to his senses. The account makes it clear that Peter was awakened suddenly and that he must have been confused, and even he thought he was only seeing a vision. If you've ever been rousted from sleep in the middle of the night, you could imagine what Peter had felt. This event of Peter's arrest and escape took place many years after the stoning of Stephen, since Herod Agrippa I was not elevated to the position of a king, yet he is called the king here in his chapter of Acts, he was not elevated to that position until the time of Claudius Caesar, who ascended to the position of emperor in 41 AD. So it is no earlier than 41 AD. Yet it is fully manifest that throughout all of this time, there had been hostility towards the followers of Christ by the general population of the Judeans, the prevalently Edomite ancestors of today's Jews. Verse 12. And understanding it, he went by the house of Maria, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where there were many gathering and praying. This is the first mention of Mark in the New Testament. Here in Acts, Mark is only mentioned in chapters 12 and 15. And he exits the narrative here where he is taken by Barnabas after some contention between Barnabas and Paul over Mark's commitment to the work of the gospel. 
What is little noticed is that this Mark certainly does seem to be the Mark who was with Paul later in his life. And therefore, he must have been later reconciled to Paul. In his epistle to the Colossians, Colossians 4.10, Paul mentioned Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he should come to you, receive him. And we see that Mark is not only one of those who were with Paul when he wrote that epistle, but this Mark who was with Paul has a familial connection with Barnabas. That may be the reason why Barnabas defended him earlier, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 15, in the connection and split with Paul. In the contention and split with Paul, I'm sorry, my eyesight's going. The translators of the King James Version considered Mark to be the nephew of Barnabas when they translated Colossians 4.10. Either nephew or cousin is a plausible translation of the Greek word. But the way the King James has it, sister's son is conjecture. Although perhaps it may come from some tradition recorded elsewhere at a later time that I myself, are in, I myself am ignorant of. From the scripture alone, it's an absolute conjecture. A nephew could be a brother's son as well. Mark is mentioned again by Paul in Philemon 124, and also in Paul's second letter to Timothy. Both of those epistles were written near the very end of Paul's life. Paul told Timothy to take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So Paul had a complete about-face concerning Mark, or perhaps Mark had a complete about-face concerning his dedication to the gospel. <laughs> so, in the King James Version, the name is spelled in Acts and in 2 Timothy is Mark. And in Paul's other epistles and in 1 Peter in the King James Version, it's spelled Marcus. But it's the same Greek word. This certainly seems to be the same Mark, who was at one time also with Peter, as it is recorded in 1 Peter 5.13. Here in Acts chapter 12, it is evident that Mark and Peter were certainly well acquainted. From all of this, from all of the appearances of Mark in Acts chapters 12 and 15 and in the, God, in, in the epistles of Peter and Paul, from all of this, if we had to piece together a proper narrative, putting these things into perspective, we may conjecture that while Paul was in Rome, he had been visited by Mark who later departed to visit with Peter. Therefore, Paul, in his second epistle to Timothy, wrote that only Luke is with me. While Colossians and Philemon were epistles which Paul wrote from Rome sometime before he wrote to Timothy, and that can be established. And at that time, Mark was with him. Later, when Peter wrote his first epistle, which was actually written to the Christian assemblies of Western Anatolia, which Paul had founded 
We see that Mark is mentioned in the salutation as being in Babylon with Peter. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, that Babylon in Peter 1 Peter 5.13, that's a code word for Rome. And, and then when you take those same people, usually they're Catholics, right? When you take those same people to the Revelation and say, Babylon, you see that? That's Rome. They'll say, oh, no, it's not. They're hypocrites. They do it all the time. I've seen it. Babylon in Peter's epistle is certainly not a code word for Rome. Peter was in Babylon. That's what he said. I don't have any historical or scriptural evidence whatsoever that Babylon could have indicated or meant Rome in the minds of men in the first century. Now, perhaps today we can understand prophetically that the Roman church is a part of mystery Babylon, and that's fine. But there's no way that men had that in mind in the first century. The Roman church didn't even exist. I mean, come on. And any city, any major metropolis such as Rome can be described after the manner of mystery Babylon, or even the confused Babylon of the book of Genesis. So Babylon, when Peter wrote it, it was most certainly Babylon. And there were a lot of Judeans. There were a lot of dispersed Judeans from the Babylonian exile who were still in Babylon in Peter's time. A great number of them were bad figs, but not all. The Gospel of Mark was by all means, by all of the accounts of the earliest Christian writers, Peter's Gospel, Peter's testimony, and it was written while Mark was in Rome, and that is plausible. Mark was in Rome, there's no doubt. Whether Peter was in Rome at the time of his death, I would question, because the records are scant and the descriptions are, are, are practically non-existent. There's a few records 200 years later or 150 years later from what I've seen so far. But Mark was in Rome after the death of Peter, wherever Peter died. If Peter died in Rome, that's fine. I have no, no beef with that. I just don't, can't, I, I couldn't prove it. The witnesses to Mark's writing his gospel in Rome after the death of Peter, are many. And we presented them here when we presented the Gospel of Mark and my commentary upon that in the fall of 2011. I agree with that because mostly because the internal evidence of that Gospel indicates that it was written for a Roman audience, a Latin-speaking speaking audience, which is also attested to by the early Christian writers, since although it was written in Greek, it employs the use of many grammatical terms which could be considered Latinisms, and, and some actual Latin words transliterated into Greek, where coins and measures and, and um, official places such as courts are mentioned as well as the many Hebraisms that it contains. So Mark, being written in Greek and containing many Latinisms and many Hebraisms, those facts are quite consistent with the idea and, and the attestations of the early Christian writings uh, 
uh, writers, the early Christian writers, that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome after Peter's death. That's all very consistent and consistent with the actual contents of his gospel. Mark's gospel, which does not bear his name, also contains the only record of an incident which occurred during the arrest of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, for which reason many believe that it was Mark himself who was being described. And here I will quote it from the King James Version of Mark chapter 14, from verse 51. This is at the arrest of Christ in the Garden. And there followed him, meaning Christ, a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men, meaning those who were arresting Christ, and the young men laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And I believe, I don't have this in my written notes here, but I believe I first read the idea that that account is describing Mark, and I agree with it, I really do, because Mark had to be a Christian before this incident with Peter, long before, and, and because of his connections to other early Christians. I believe I first read that in Bertrand Compare in his writing. I, I, I'd be pressed to find it, but I probably could. Verse 13, and upon his knocking at the door of the gate, A maiden named Rhoda came forth to answer, and recognizing the voice of Peter, because of her joy, she did not open the gate. The Codex Laudianus, 5th century, says she did not open the door for him. But running in, announced that Peter stood by the gate, and they said to her, Are you mad? The words may be rendered as a question. Are you crazy? The King James Version reads the clause as an interjection. You are mad, which is also proper. That's fine. But she confidently affirmed it to be so. Then they said, and these are important words, then they said, it is his angel. The Codex Beze has, then they said to her, perhaps it is his angel. This is the only time that the Christogenian New Testament transliterates the word, the Greek word angelos, Strong's number 32, as angel, rather than translating the word as messenger. There's a serious reason why I did that. Here it is fully apparent that it stands for either spirit, which is usually the word pneuma, or ghost, where the word phantasma would have been appropriate. And phantasma appears in Scripture at Matthew 14.26 and at Mark 6.29, describing the, um, the event where Christ at night was walking on the water, and the apostles believed he was a ghost, which is a phantasma. That's the word that was used. They couldn't believe it was actually Christ out there in the middle of Lake Kinneroth or, or, or the Sea of Galilee, right? The word phantasma is also used. It, it means an apparition, but it's also used of ghosts, what we would call ghosts, in Greek classical writings all the way from the time of Homer, when the ghost of Achilles appeared 
to Odysseus. Or at least it was described that way, right? It is evident that with Peter's miraculous deliverance and with his arrival at the door, the people were astonished. And instead, they believed that he had been slain. The appearance in this passage of the word angelos, or angel, is consistent among all the ancient manuscripts. Therefore, with this, it may be revealed through the use of this word in such a context. That to these first century Christians, the messengers, or angels of Yahweh God, were indeed thought to be spiritual beings. That the deceased could also join their ranks is an obvious belief of these people using this word in this context. This is in spite of the fact that at times such angels are depicted in Scripture as flesh and blood beings, and that's without a doubt. So, so we can't, when we use that word angel or messenger, what we have to look at it subjectively and in the context in which it lies it obviously could sometimes be referring to a supernatural spiritual being. In Genesis chapter 19, there were men that wanted to have sex with those angels, and they were certainly flesh and blood beings. But they also had extraordinary ability. They had the ability to strike those men blind at will, right? As the account reads in Genesis 19, notwithstanding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 16, And Peter continued knocking, and opening they saw him, and they were astonished. But he, motioning to them with the hand that they be silent, described for them how the prince delivered him from the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and to the brethren. And departing, he went to another place. Of course, he had to mean James the Younger. Of course, he had to mean James the brother of Christ, because the other James had just been slain by Herod, right? The third century papyrus P45 and the codices Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus want those words for them. It's really immaterial. Verse 18. And upon the coming of day, there was not a little. The Codex Beze wants those words, not a little. There was not a little trouble among the soldiers. What then happened to Peter? And Herod, seeking after and not finding him, examining the guards, commanded them to be taken away. And going down from Judea, spent time in Caesarea, which was by the sea. The Codex Beze has of Herod that he commanded the guards to be slain, having the verb apokatino, which is literally to kill or to condemn to death. The King James Version has read the verb in the text, which is Apago, Strong's number 520, in that same manner, inferring a meaning which Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, also attests that the word may have. However, Liddell and Scott do not supply such a meaning to the word, which is literally to take away, to lead away, or to carry off, 
That's why the Christogenian New Testament only has that Herod commanded that they be taken away. It's the literal basic meaning of the verb. Therefore, the text does not necessarily indicate that the guards were killed, although that may have been the case. Note that later, when Paul was arrested in Philippi, when he and his fellow prisoners were thought to have escaped, Acts 16.27, the jailer nearly committed suicide, indicating that the penalty for allowing the escape of a prisoner may well have been death. Acts chapter 12, verse 20. And he, meaning Herod, was disputing angrily with the Turians and Sidonians. But with one accord they came near to him, and persuading Blastus, the chamberlain of the king, again meaning Herod, Herod Agrippa, they requested peace because their country was supported by that of the kings. Tyre and Sidon, were port cities. They were reliant on Judea, both for trade and for much of their own food supplies in order to survive, in order to function as cities. This circumstance is evident at least as early as 1 Kings chapter 5. Not that the, the Tyrians of um, the time of Solomon were related to the Tyrians of the time of Herod. However, the king, of, the king of Jerusalem at the time of Solomon, he sure as hell wasn't related to, to King Herod Agrippa either. So the geography and, and the geopolitics are still the same, even though the people have changed drastically. In 1 Kings chapter 5, it says that Solomon provided the Tyrians with wheat and oil in exchange for their services in providing supplies for the building of the temple. Tyre and Sidon being port cities were reliant on the mainland countryside, right, for their food. Flavius Josephus describes this account a little differently and much more completely, where his history corroborates the account here in Acts. He attests that at this very time, which was just before the death of Herod, Herod indeed had a dispute with the Roman, Marcus, the governor of Syria, as it is recorded in Antiquities, book 19, chapter 8. Let me take a diversion. That word Syria, that, that word Syria started out as a Greek word, right? It's not a Hebrew word at all. The Hebrew word for the land around Damascus is Aram, right? Syria and Tyre, T-Y-R-E, the name of the city, the Tyrians, right? They came from the same exact Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is T-S-O-R. T-S-O-R. That T-S is to soar, soar. It, it's, I don't know, it's weird, right? I can't, my English tongue, my Yankee tongue has a hard time with it. Well, T-S-O-R that word was the word which described what we know as the city Tyre. And the Greeks got two words from that word because they couldn't say that either. And they called the city Taurus, T-U-R-O-S. And they called the countryside around the city Saurus, 
S-U-R-O-S. Now, the Romans came along, and Surus became Syria, and Taurus became Tyria, or what we call Tyre. And there you have it. Josephus records that Herod indeed had a dispute with the Roman Marcus, the governor of Syria, who would have been the governor of Tyre and Sidon, as it is recorded in Antiquities, Book 19, 19 lines 338 through 342. The emperor, Claudius, who upon his succession to office was indebted to Herod Agrippa, had returned to him the dominions once held by his grandfather, Herod, the Herod that the Jews loved to call the Great. I really hate to call him that. I'd rather call him Herod the Edomite. That's more fitting. And Claudius also extended that dominion for Herod Agrippa northward into the mountains of Lebanon. And Josephus explains that in chapter 5 of Antiquities, book 19, lines 274 to 277. Therefore, the Judea, which Tyre and Sidon were at this time compelled to negotiate with, was a larger kingdom than at any, than at any time during the Second Temple period, and its king was very influential with the Roman emperor. Additionally, Herod's brother, Herod of Chalkis, was given the kingdom of Chalkis by Claudia, which was in Syria, what we know as Syria, and was just to the north of Lebanon and the dominion of this Herod Agrippa. Later, Herod Agrippa's son, Herod Agrippa II, ruled both kingdoms. So politically, it may be said that the Herods of Tyre, the Herods had Tyre and Sidon surrounded, although those, all those lands were under the dominion of the Roman emperor. Verse 21. And on the, on the prescribed day, Herod, being dressed in royal clothing, sitting upon the platform, was giving a speech to them. The word platform, the King James Version has throne. The word is bema. A bema is a step, a seat, a raised place, a tribune to speak from in a public assembly or in a law court. It's not necessarily a throne. Verse 22. And the people of the land called out, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. The Codex Beze has here, And upon his being reconciled with the Tyrians, then the people of the land called out. That same Codex has the word for voice in the plural. The Codex Sinaiticus has the word for man in the plural, just pointing out the minor differences amongst the different manuscripts. Verse 23, And immediately a messenger of the prince, or an angel of the Lord, immediately a messenger of the prince smote him because he did not give the honor to Yahweh. And he died being eaten by worms. The Codex Beze has that part of that verse and descending from the platform, being eaten by worms while living, then thusly he died. A very similar account of Herod Agrippa's death is given by Josephus 
in his Antiquities, in Book 19, Chapter 8. We're starting from line 343. There it is recorded that Herod Agrippa admitted being considered a god by the people and, and that he was impious for not having denied their proclamation. So th- this is a, um, a, 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 a definite corroboration of the book of Acts found in Flavius Josephus, right? I mean, there's a lot of little ones. This is a big one. Even the reasons for Herod's death are, are, are described in the same manner. Josephus also records an admission made by Herod Agrippa that he was immediately going to die for that same reason. In Josephus, the messenger or the angel was an owl. And this may present a problem to those who are convinced that all angels have to be men in white gowns, right? While often the messengers of Yahweh God are indeed men, and sometimes they are dressed in shining garments, Luke 24.4, there is no reason why an owl could not act as a messenger or an angel. Because the word angel is really just a word for messenger, right? And according to Josephus, this owl was perceived as an omen in this instance, by Herod, and we'll read that momentarily. And there is not necessarily any conflict between the account of Luke and the account of Josephus. Birds. In the ancient world, birds were often seen as messengers of the gods. And that's attested to in the classical literature. In the ancient world, their appearance or even their flight paths were seen as signs foreboding good or evil. Whether Christians see that as idolatry is immaterial because it was a fact of antiquity, whether it be right or wrong. And it was what Herod Agrippa evidently believed, according to Josephus, that really mattered. It was what he believed that mattered, right? As we learn from the book of Jonah, Yahweh God often communicates with men on terms that men can understand. The Assyrians, they were idolatrous worshippers of a goddess who was connected with doves and fish. And they and Jonah were preached to by a dove. That is the meaning of his name. And he came forth out of a fish, the whale that carried him to Nineveh. (laughs) So if you're an Assyrian and you're worshiping a goddess connected with doves and fish, when you see a man named Jonah, which means dove, come out of a fish, well, you might take that as a sign, right? Here is the account of the death of Herod Agrippa I from Josephus' Antiquities, book 19. From line 343. Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. Corroborates the book of Acts exactly. And we see also by this that it's 44 AD. 
And there he held shows in honor of Caesar. Upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons, and such as were of dignity to his province. On the second day of these shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, and the texture of a texture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though this was not for his good, and that was a parenthetical statement by Josephus, that he was a god. And they added, be merciful to us, for although we have hereto reverenced you only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own you, or, or believe you to be, right, in, in, in Whiston's English, own you as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him, and fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly, and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called the immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept what providence allots, as it pleases God, for we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner. When he said this, his pain was become violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a short time. But the multitude presently sat in sackcloth with their wives and children after the law of their country and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not himself forbear weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. Being in the 54th year of his age, he was born in 10 BC, and in the seventh year of his reign, for he reigned four years under Gaius Caesar. He was tetrarch under Caligula. Gaius Caesar is Caligula. Three of them were over Philip's tetrarchy only, and on the fourth he had that of Herod, meaning Herod, Antipas, whom he basically betrayed. He had that of Herod added to it, 
And he reigned besides those three years under the reign of Claudius Caesar, in which time he reigned over the before-mentioned countries, and also had Judea added to them, as well as Samaria and Caesarea. The revenues that he received out of them were very great, no less than 12 millions of drachmas. Yet did he borrow great sums from others, for he was so very liberal that his expenses exceeded his incomes, and his generosity was boundless. Just what a liberal would say about Franklin Roosevelt, right? As it always is with Edomites, ruling with taxpayer money, their generosity is boundless. Line 353 of Josephus, book 19. But before the multitude were made acquainted with Agrippa's death, Herod, the king of Chalcis, Herod Agrippa's brother, and Helchius, the master of his cavalry, and the king's friend, sent Aristo, one of the king's most faithful servants, and slew Silas, who had been their enemy, as if it had been done by the king's own command. Typical Edomite treachery there. And thus did King Agrippa depart this life. But he left behind him a son, Agrippa by name, a youth in the seventeenth year of his age. He would become King Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa II, and three daughters, one of which, Berenike, or Bernice, was married to Herod, his father's brother, and was sixteen years old. She would later marry Herod Agrippa II. The other two, Mariam and Drusilla, were still virgins. The former was ten years old, and Drusilla six. I should be surprised. That's the end of my account of, of, of my reading of Josephus's account of the death of Herod Agrippa. Now, some esteem both of these accounts, that of Luke and that of Josephus, to be correct in a different manner, imagining that an angel of Yahweh appeared as an owl to men. This commentator prefers to think that Yahweh God used an owl as a messenger, in this case as an omen, as Herod Agrippa interpreted it. It is senseless to argue which, which interpretation is correct, since neither can be proven with certainty. But one or the other, or perhaps even both, can be true. One or the other are certainly true, of course. There was once a king of Cyrenica. Cyrenica was the Greek settlement in Libya, whose name was Batus, and his wife was Feretima. Batus died in 530 BC, and his kingdom fell to his son. Arcesilaus, 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 I guess, who made an alliance with Persia. Arcesilaus used that alliance to strengthen his rule over the Cyrenians beyond the constitution which was made by his father. In the ensuing uprising, people don't like to be enslaved, and, and that was a period of... Um, desire for liberty by all Greeks, the, the overthrow of tyrants, the, the Athenian democracy, right? In the ensuing uprising, Arcesilaus and his mother were exiled from Cyrenica. In the struggle to regain their kingdom, Arcesilaus, being in the Cyrenian town of Barca, was murdered. 
Barca being a coast, a, a town on the coast of Africa in what we call Cyrenica, which is the, the main city of Cyrenica was Cyrene or Cyrene, C-Y-R-E-N-E. We see that several times in, in the book of Acts. That city is mentioned, right? When his mother returned to power with the help of the Persians, she very cruelly avenged her son against the people of Barca, who denied any culpability in his death. He just simply died there, right? Herodotus, the historian whom this, the, the, knowledge, the best knowledge of this account comes from, Herodotus describes the subsequent death of Arcesilaus' mother, Ferratima, as vengeance from the gods on behalf of the people of Barca. Here we shall quote Herodotus' Histories, Book 4, Chapter 205. I'll quote it from the Macaulay translation. Ferratima, however, did not bring her life happily to an end any more than they, for as soon as she had returned from Egypt, from Libya to Egypt, after having avenged herself on the Barkians, the people of Barca, she died an evil death having become suddenly full of worms while yet alive. For as it seems, two severe punishments inflicted by men proved displeasing to the gods. Such and so great was the punishment inflicted by Ferratima, the wife of Bodice on Amenabarca. So Ferratima was described as becoming full of worms while yet alive, and then she died eaten by worms, just like Herod Agrippa I. In modern times, Ferratima, <laughs> evidently in honor of this queen, is the name given to a genus of earthworms. Evidently, some biologist read some classical Greek and had a sense of humor. The disease, which is most commonly attributed to Herod Agrippa's death, is something called fornier gangrene. Now, I don't, we don't know if that's the disease, but it's the most likely candidate. F-O-U-R-N-I-E-R. Fournier gangrene, which begins in the urinary tract and becomes manifest on the surface of the body in its late stages, on the abdomen and on the genitals. Pictures of those stricken with the disease are rather repulsive. You would think that somebody died being eaten by worms from the inside out. Verse 24. And the word of Yahweh grew and was multiplied. And Barnabas and Saulus returned to Jerusalem, completing the supply, taking along with them John who is called Mark. The Codex Alexandrinus has from Jerusalem, returned from Jerusalem, using the preposition ek. The Codices Bezay and Laudianus have from Jerusalem, using the preposition apo, to which the Codex Laudianus adds the words to Antioch, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Actually, Paul and Paul. Uh, I'm sorry, Saul is here, Saul, he's not Paul yet, right? And Barnabas had to return to Jerusalem if we read Acts chapter 11, right?
the text is in keeping with the statements concerning this mission in Acts chapter 11 and follows the older and better codices, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, with which in this instance the majority text agrees. The phrase completing the supply is literally completing the ministry or completing the service. This word diaconia was also discussed at length in the last segment of this presentation. As we, we discussed Acts 11, verses 29 and 30, where it says, Then of the students, just as anyone prospered, each of them set aside for supplies to send to those brethren dwelling in Judea, which they then did, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saulus. So we see that when Herod Agrippa slew the Apostle James and arrested the Apostle Peter, and Peter was afforded his miraculous escape, that Barnabas and Saul were out of town, that they were collecting supplies for the saints in Judea. Evidently, with the death of Herod Agrippa I, the persecution of Christians in Judea at this time had, had subsided. The word of Yahweh grew and was multiplied. It subsided at least for a time. Josephus wrote very affectionately of Agrippa. He portrayed him as a noble man. However, we must bear in mind... And, and we must put all historical statements and biblical statements into perspective, right? We must bear in mind that Josephus himself was only seven years old. He was born in 37 AD at the time when Agrippa died. And therefore, the writing of Josephus here merely reflects how Agrippa was remembered by Judeans in general. That Josephus' portrayal of Agrippa's nature is quite the contrary to that which is found in the New Testament only helps to verify the extent of the gulf between the followers of Christ and their attitudes and those who rejected Christ and their attitudes as it is described in the New Testament. So Josephus corroborates the New Testament in more ways than one. This completes our presentation of Acts chapter 12. Tomorrow, Sword Brother and I will be presenting what may be the last segment of Addressing the Shills. It is also incredible to me that a couple of people have been writing and exhorting me not to defend myself against scurrilous lies and accusations. Many of them are the same people whom I referred to in my opening remarks this evening. Next week, Yahweh willing, we, meaning Melissa and I, will be in Panama City, Florida, where we, we will be hosted by our good friend and brother in the faith, John Waite Moore. From there, next Friday, I will be presenting two of my latest essays, since they are on related topics, No Safe Haven and Stripped Bare and Naked. What a time the children of Israel have to look forward to. Next Saturday evening, Pastors Don Elmore and Mark Downey will be here. That should be a treat. Yahweh willing, our presentation of Acts will commence on August 30th. I am undecided as of yet 
on what the content of the August 23rd program should be. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.